0: second scripture this morning is taken from Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine if you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words from my mouth speak to our hearts what you would have us hear this day. Amen. When Jeff asked me to fill the pulpit for a few weeks during his sabbatical, I have to admit I was a little hesitant. I have truly enjoyed the transition from church employee to church member, and I wasn't sure I wanted to hop back into that other side. There was a a particular moment on the house floor uh, I think it was in June, a lot of chaos going on, people screaming at each other, and one of my colleagues came up and said, Jesse, said, for being someone new you look remarkably relaxed, and you don't seem to have a lot of stress. I said, man, I worked at a church before this. (laughs) You don't, you don't know what stress is. So after a few weeks uh, from when we selected the dates that I would speak, I I did start to reflect upon my time in ministry, because that really wasn't the reason I was hesitant. The reason I was hesitant was I was concerned without being here every day, would I have the pulse of the congregation? would I really know the message that that we needed to hear for that day and that's kinda when the Lord knocked me up alongside the head and said look I was the one that would guide you on your messages before and I'll do it again and I reflected upon my time here and started to think of the questions that, that I had received when I did when I was in ministry here and I kept coming back to this one question and it was a recurring theme and then I listened to Jeff and Rod or Jeff, Jim, and Rod the last three weeks and I thought this is exactly where we need to be. The question I was asked most often during my tenure here was this, or a close variation, Jesse, how can we keep our Christian faith while the world does everything it can to pull us away? Everything about our culture seems to run counter to how we should live and it doesn't seem like anything that we can do or are going to do is really going to change that. And What I hear in that type of question is this, How do we live faithfully in an unfaithful world? And the honest answer to that question is, it's not easy. Following God's plan for our lives in today's world is extremely difficult. But guess what? It always has been. I think there's a perception out there, especially among Christians, that this world, America, 2015, what we see is in as bad a shape as the world has ever been. There's a culture of violence, there's the lack of a moral compass, acceptance of society by so many actions that seem to violate God's law, and we think, this is as awful as it can get. But friends, that's not really true. As you study the Bible, as you study history in general, you find out that the world in which we live today is the world that humanity has always lived in. Yes, all those things I mentioned can be found in our culture, but they can be found during every time period of human history. Old Testament, New Testament, Egypt, Rome, even Israel itself strayed far from God's plan and God's way. We're not unique in 20th and 21st century America and that's good news. Because as we look back through the pages of scripture we can find examples of how godly men and women were able to navigate through the cultural chaos that they encountered and we can realize that we can do the same thing today. I think some of the greatest examples of faith in the face of a hostile culture are found in the book of Daniel. And that's going to be our focus both for this morning and next Sunday. This is a a two-part series you're going to have to put up with me for two weeks. And over the next two weeks I'd like to pull together two accounts from Daniel because I believe they're beautifully connected and they give us a road map for a faithful life that honors the one who created us we'll start with this account from Daniel chapter one because it gives us our context and notice I use the word account and not story and and that's deliberate I always try to use the word account when describing something in the Bible This is just a personal preference because I believe when you hear the word story what do you think of You think of something make-believe. Disney came up with a lot of great stories. And, And I know that when we talk about the Bible and use the word story, that's not what we're saying. But just in my mind, I like to use the word account. Because this happened. I believe that this happened. I believe it happened in this way. Not a big deal if you want to call things story from the Bible. Just my own little preference. But in this account, we find these four young men. Daniel, Hananiah, whose name was changed to Shadrach, meaning great or royal scribe. Mishael changed to Meshach, meaning guest of the king, and Azariah changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo. <clears throat> now I don't know what happened the names when they got to Azariah, but if I was Abednego I would feel a little bit short-changed. You know we've got great and royal scribe, we've got guest of the king, and we've got servant of some guy that nobody ever heard of. So I don't, I don't exactly know how he drew that straw, but he didn't seem too bitter about it, so that's good. These young men were part of a group of captives that were captured when Nebuchadnezzar and his army laid siege to Jerusalem and defeated the Israelites. And after that happened, Nebuchadnezzar called his advisors together and said, Look, and I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but I imagine the conversation went like this. There are probably some smart young people out there that could cause us trouble in a few years if we let them remain. They'll become bitter, they'll attract followers, eventually they'll lead some sort of a rebellion. So, let's get the best and the brightest young men from Israel and let's take them with us. We'll keep them at the palace, we'll treat them well, we'll give them the best education they can receive, and we'll train them in the ways of Babylon. And that way, not only do we get a great new batch of leadership coming through our ranks, but we remove them from their home setting where they could possibly cause trouble and have an uprising against the kingdom. Very strategic move on Nebuchadnezzar's part. It was a win-win. Now I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of these kids. They were probably around what we would consider middle school age. You've just been ripped away from your family, some of whom may have been killed. You're being taken to a strange land to be indoctrinated by your captors. So things would seem pretty bleak. But then they arrive in Babylon and the complete opposite happens the red carpet is rolled out I mean they're gonna be housed and trained at the palace of Nebuchadnezzar himself which I'm guessing was a pretty nice place they're going to have food and wine provided from the king's own kitchen which again I'm imagining was a pretty decent spread they're gonna be clothed in the finest clothes they're gonna have access to everything that Babylonian teens had access to and all of a sudden Maybe the attitude starts to change a little bit. Maybe this isn't so bad. But something still doesn't sit right with these four friends, and that's where we pick up in Daniel 1. I I would encourage you to read from Daniel 1 at the beginning. I just kind of summarized, but read. There's some great meat uh, in Daniel 1. But we'll pick it up in verse 8. Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission. We'll come back to this part. He asked for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Of course, as we read, the chief of staff was not too keen on this idea because his head was on the chopping block, literally, if these kids started to look like they were on a hunger strike. But Daniel convinced him to go along with this for a 10-day test. In verse 15, at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine prepared for the others. <clears throat> Do You remember when you were a teenager? Some of you were still pretty close. For others, it's a little more of a stretch, but I'm sure we can all get there. How would you have handled this situation? You're introduced to the most lavish, enticing lifestyle you could imagine. Name brand clothes, the latest, greatest technology, hanging with members of the opposite sex with no parental supervision, and an endless supply of food and alcohol. Would you have done well in that environment as a teenager? And when I say have done well, What I mean is, would you have been able to live faithfully to God under those circumstances? Because friends, that was Babylon at the time. Babylon was a superpower nation that had top flight technology, great wealth among the people, but no moral compass to guide them. There were laws in place, civil laws, for keeping the peace in the kingdom. But from a morality standpoint, the philosophy of Babylon was anything goes. Does that sound familiar? And yet now, look at how these young men handled themselves. First of all, I think sometimes we as Christians feel the need to lose our humility when we're about to make a stand for God. If we see something we don't think is appropriate, we're quick to condemn the action, action usually behind everybody's back, and make it very clear that we as a righteous person would never do such a horrible, horrible thing. But look at what Daniel does. First, he doesn't demand anything. He asks for permission. I find that part really interesting. Listen, Mr. Chief of Staff, I know this request is going to put you in a bad spot, but we really don't feel comfortable eating this stuff. Can you help us out? And when the Chief of Staff balks a little bit at the request, Daniel doesn't immediately say, fine, we're just boycotting all food and good luck with the king when we die of starvation here in a few weeks. Instead, he uses logic and he uses a reasoned argument. I was once told by a pastor friend of mine that logic and faith do not have to be mutually exclusive. You can use one and the other. So let's see what he does. When it comes to God, he says, look, this is what he's laying on my heart. If you just let us try it, and if it doesn't look like it's going well, we'll go back and do it your way. But if you just let us try it for 10 days, let's see how it turns out. He's saying, just look at things at the end of 10 days. That's a very reasoned, sound, logical argument to make. And so they allowed it to happen. But for us, it seems like when it comes to God, we don't want to engage in that debate. We prefer to say things like, well, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Okay. Okay. That's bumper sticker theology to me. Here's the problem with that. If the person you're talking to doesn't believe in God in the first place, then it doesn't settle it for them. We have to go deeper. You have to say, look, this is why God's plan is better. Not because I say it's better, but because you can be healthier. You can accomplish more. Your relationships can be stronger if you do it this way. Someone once asked me when I was here if I thought that you could still be a Christian and live with someone before you were married. Live with somebody out of wedlock. And I said, look, first of all, I'm not going to critique somebody else's walk with the Lord. I've got my own issues. I'm not going to make the statement of who's a Christian and who's not based on a list of do's and don'ts. I said, but here's what I'll say. I think that God has laid out a plan for marriage. And he's not doing it because he's trying to condemn anyone. And neither am I. He just desires that his children are happy and content and joyful within their relationships. And so there are some guidelines that he lays out. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference in tone, in using logic as opposed to answering that question? Like I'm sure, sometimes we've all felt like answering some questions. Well, it says here, XYZ verse in the Bible, that you shouldn't do it. And if you do do it, then you're doomed to destruction. sexual immorality I've never found that approach to be very effective I've never found it to be the approach that Jesus used when he was talking and also I've never liked to come back with the question well wait a minute it also says in the Bible that you should stone your children if they misbehave what do you think about that although that's not a terrible idea every once in a while I'm sure we all (laughs) But look, you can't can't always just try and point to a verse and pick it out and use that. Sometimes you have to go deeper. You have to say, this is God's ideal. And there's a reason for that. This is not a path meant to condemn. This is a path that's meant to lead you to a happy and healthier place. And that's exactly what Daniel laid out. Now, we've all heard the frustrations that have come into our faith. When we see Christians doing things that we don't think they should do. And that's the second thing I want you to notice in this account. Notice that Daniel didn't call on the other Jews to do what he, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were choosing to do. And they didn't. Verse 16. So after that, meaning the 10-day test, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine still provided for the others. Wouldn't you have expected to read something like this? Then Daniel called all the Jewish captives together, told them that God's way would not allow the eating of these rich foods, and they must repent and cease eating the king's food immediately. And they could all stand up to the king together and say, King, we're not doing this. Or we're going to bring about change to the whole Babylonian kingdom. Doesn't that sound like something we would have written? I think we become frustrated in our faith, and I'm speaking for myself here as well, when we see other Christians engaging activities that we don't approve of, and we're very quick to condemn, especially through church gossip. One of the excuses I would hear for individuals and families leaving our church and many other churches is that there was someone or a group of people in the congregation who were doing something that was wrong, according to those who were leaving. We hear this excuse... I'm leaving so-and-so church because they have hypocrites there. Okay? Now, there are so many issues that I have with that statement, but let's start with this. Why do someone else's actions affect your faith so much? And if they do, perhaps it's time to look in the mirror and evaluate your own personal walk with the Lord. See, Daniel and his buddies didn't look to condemn the others. Look, if they didn't feel convicted by eating certain foods, then maybe God wasn't burdening their heart with it. But it doesn't mean they weren't Jews. It doesn't mean they didn't believe in God. It doesn't mean Daniel and the guys can't associate with them. It's just that in the heart for these young Jews, these four, they felt the pull of God to act and live in a different way. And that's what living faithfully meant to them. In that moment. Now, hear me clearly on this next point. There are certain moral laws laid down by God through the Bible, I believe, are non-negotiable. I'm not saying that. It's for my life, for others. I'm not trying to excuse any particular behaviors. What I'm suggesting is that living faithfully doesn't start with legalism. The Pharisees tried it that way. And we found out in our first scripture reading that Jesus isn't too impressed with that. He condemned the Pharisees and the religious experts in Luke 11 because they were burdening the very people they were to be ministering to. They were using God's law to bludgeon the people and also to elevate themselves on a pedestal. And Jesus was very sharp in his criticism with the Pharisees. In fact, as I read through the scriptures, and I'm sure you have as well, you noticed that when Jesus encountered the tax collectors who were cheating the people out of their money, Or he encountered the unemployed, or he encountered the beggars, or he encountered the prostitutes. He never addressed them as sharply as he did the Pharisees. The religious leaders. The ones who were following God's law to a T in their own mind. Because they were using God's law, not as a path, but simply as a hammer. And Jesus was very frustrated with that. It doesn't start with legalism. Living faithfully can't start with legalism. It starts with responding to the Holy Spirit's call on your life and my life as an individual before it involves trying to run everyone else's spiritual life. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego handled being different in a crowd, and they were different. But they handled it with humility, grace, and respectfulness. And they certainly were different. People certainly took notice. Beginning at verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It goes on to say that the king found them ten times more capable than any of his magicians or enchanters. And how did they do it? There was no showboating, no demands, no threats, just obedience. Obedience to the call of God amidst a culture that didn't respect God at all. What a great lesson to take from these young men. William Penn the founder and namesake of our commonwealth, grew up in the upper class of society, and at the time what you wore signified the class of which you were a part. So young men born to the upper class would wear swords around their belts. Now these were not weapons meant to do harm, they were simply symbols. At age 23, Penn became a Quaker, and of course Quakers are pacifists who stood squarely against class distinctions. So the two things that a sword, this sword represented, which was it was a weapon, but it was also distinguishing someone from a different class, those were two things that Quakers were in absolute opposition to. And now Penn was a Quaker. So he struggled with this, and he went to his mentor and a Quaker leader, George Fox, and asked him about this sword. He asked the question, should I continue to wear this sword? now what would we have expected Fox to say destroy that thing throw it into the deepest body of water that you can find and let it sink to the bottom but when asked should I continue to wear this sword this is what Fox said wear it as long as you can William wear it as long as you can see Fox knew what we as Christians must continue to learn If someone within the church or even a pastor tells you what to wear or watch or do or boycott or eat or participate in, you're more likely to walk away from that. You weren't ready to make the change or maybe that person who told you lost their credibility with you or or something comes up in circumstances and you walk away. But if that nudge comes from the Holy Spirit, now you'll stick with that as long as your relationship with God is strong so when I hear the question how do I live faithfully in today's culture the temptation might be to give a whole long list of do's and don'ts but instead I think our answer should be simple have a strong personal relationship with Jesus Christ have a strong relationship with him if he's walking with you You will feel his nudgings. He will guide your steps. You will know in your heart what you're being led to do. And then it's up to us to follow it. There's a lot of Christians who have certain rules. Maybe they go see certain movies, or they don't see movies that are rated a certain way. They don't go to restaurants that serve alcohol. Don't drink alcohol at all. Maybe some who don't smoke or think smoke. When we start trying to parse what rules there are for Christians, I think that's when we get into trouble. The real question is, what's your heart leading you to do? What's the Holy Spirit leading you to do? And we will only know that if our relationship with Jesus Christ is strong, if our walk with the Lord is strong. If your personal relationship with him is solid, I do believe all the other stuff starts to fall into place and that's when you can start laying your swords down one at a time when he says it's time not when someone else says that it's time living faithfully starts by walking with the Lord each and every day and being responsive to his gentle nudging on your heart even in the little issues that come up throughout the day and as we'll see with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego next week when we're faithful in the little things We'll be ready when the fiery furnaces of life roll around. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?